Uh, one of the exciting parts about being a church family is moments like these. Um, we have had, over the course of probably the last three years, uh, it seems like enough babies to fill uh, a small ark. Uh, but it's always exciting. Uh, we, in fact, we had another one born, what is it, yesterday, last night? Was Friday. Uh, if you have not heard, Titus Gerber uh, was born, Anna and uh, Daniel. I'm sorry, my mind is like out in space today. Uh, so just exciting. So, And I know that there are a number of family here. So if you are family and you want to get a picture, don't hesitate to come in the middle of the aisle and take a picture. But uh, So if Stephen and Sarah and Scott and Sheila would come on up. She's asleep, so she, she may not cry. I, I want to see if we can mess this up. Turn it towards your chest. Turn her towards my chest. It's been a while since I... Oh, there we go. She's just going to stay asleep, which is good. So uh, it's always an exciting thing. We don't believe that, that this is a special sacred uh, ritual, that she is now saved or something like that. We believe that what we are teaching is that Stephen and Sarah want to raise this little one in the admonition of the Lord, and they would love to have you guys help them. And what that means is that they are saying our desire for her is that she grows in the knowledge of the Lord. And as you can admonish, encourage them as they do that and this little one, uh, that's their heart. And uh, we have precedent in Scripture of babies uh, being dedicated to the Lord. The first one coming from uh, Hannah, uh, dedicating Samuel to the Lord and, and giving uh, Samuel actually to the temple to uh, be raised. Um, I am not going to raise this child. They are, and we're grateful for that. I, I have two girls already, and uh, it, is, it is sweet, though, and it's always exciting for, for me as a pastor to see these little ones and to know that I can um, make them cry and give them back to mom and dad. So um, we want to pray a blessing over Sheila and Scott and over Stephen and Sarah as they uh, raise these two. Uh, two becomes a, a little more challenging because they're equal with you. And I've heard that three, they outnumber you, and it's even harder. So um, anyway, uh, Sheila, whose name means heavenly, uh, we, we recognize that uh, the desire is that she would look heavenly. She would look towards the Father, who is her creator, towards the Son who came and lived and died for her. And we look forward to a day where she can come to know Jesus as her personal Savior, and we hope and pray that it is early in her life. So let's just pray a blessing on this one. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Sheila Joy Heindel. And we ask, Lord, that you would just bless her, that she would grow to maturity as a godly woman, that she would love you and, and cherish you, that she would set her heart and her affections towards the things of heaven and not of this earth. And Father, we pray for uh, Stephen and Sarah that you would just empower them with boldness to teach her the things that she needs to know, that uh, you would allow them the grace to love her and care for her as you care for them. And Father, we pray for this church family that we could come alongside of them and minister to them in the ways that they need, 
Pray that you would just bless this family. Pray for Scott as a big brother, that he would love and care for his little sister as a protector and as a blessing to her. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we give you the glory in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. She's waking up. Perfect timing. <laughs> say hi. Hi. She's like, who is this? Oh, she smiled. I'm just saying. Oh. Exciting times. I remember many, it seems like yesterday, having those two stand in front of me and a congregation as we uh, acknowledged before man what God had acknowledged, their, their marriage together, and now they have two beautiful kids as well. What a, what a great thing that God has instituted the family and has brought us to this place. We are pausing from the book of Mark uh, for Advent, um, and we are going to be spending some time uh, looking at Advent, and I couldn't think of a book of the Bible that says Jesus came more than the book of Hebrews, because when you think of Advent, you think of Hebrews, right? Uh, We're actually going to spend a month looking through the book of Hebrews, because I do believe that there is quite a bit in the book of Hebrews in regards to the whole coming of Jesus. And and I just want to preface, as I already did in the, the lighting of the Advent, that Advent is a Latin word, Adventus, which simply means coming. And the concept or the idea is with anticipation. And so as we gear up for the celebration on December 25th, and we think through all that is going on, I want us to just take some time over the coming weeks to to consider, um, what's the point? You know, if He is God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and He could, with a snap of His finger, declare forgiveness of sins from His throne, why didn't He just do that? Why did He leave His throne, approach earth by taking on flesh and blood and living and dwelling among us, what is the significance of that? And, and that's what we want to look at over the next four weeks. And I believe that uh, as I've spent some time studying this, I think there are four things that we want to look at of why Jesus came. And the first one today we're going to look at is the simple fact is He came. He came. And we want to consider the significance of that. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read this. If you would stand with me while we read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Starting at verse 1, it says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your word. We thank You for this time to just pause and reflect and consider uh, Your coming 
And Father, we pray that as we do so, that you would just minister to us, that you would speak truth to us, that we might hear from you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If I don't get a timer started, this could last all day. Hmm. Come on. I love the book of Hebrews. It is, uh, and I do not say this uh, half-heartedly, it is my favorite book of the Bible. And, and I know I say that about a lot, and this time I really, really, really do mean it. Um, it is, in all sincerity, it is my favorite book. It is an incredible book. Um, there is, you know, the, the ongoing debate, you know, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And some of you might have an old uh, King James version, and it probably says that Paul wrote it. Others may speculate that Apollos, the, the man whom Priscilla and Aquila uh, trained up more, wrote it. Um, uh, you know, there's speculation of all kinds of people who wrote the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to solve that debate for you all right now. Um, the author of the book of, the, of Hebrews is the Holy Spirit, all right? Um, that's the reality. Um, there is a lot of debate, and I don't want to get into this because it kind of deviates. There's, there's a lot of reason why it very well could have been Paul that wrote it, because this book was written with an audience of Jerusalem and most likely Hebrew believers, and those people in Jerusalem would not have liked Paul. And if Paul would have signed it, he, they probably would not have ever picked it up and read it. So there's a very good reason why it could have been Paul that wrote it and did not sign it on purpose. Um, but that is neither here nor there in, in the realm of importance. But I think there are some background details that I want you to understand and I want you to see because I think they are important. Um, it is an epistle. It is the only epistle uh, written uh, not to address a problem specific problem of a church that had issues going on, uh, but it is, it is an epistle that is written a, not as an address or a reaction to a problem, it is a statement of theology. Okay, this is very important. It is a statement about the superiority of Jesus Christ and the new covenant to the old. And that is so important that you keep in mind as you walk through the book of Hebrews because it is, it is a book that I am convinced is misused and abused to, to uh, make wrong statements about things such as eternal security and various other topics. But it is written uh, with the purpose of uh, being written to the audience is believers, and they were specifically Hebrew believers, and it was the, the essential message was don't be tempted to go back. Because you have to understand that the Hebrew believers in Jerusalem would have still gone to the temple and they would, have, they would have been, by declaring that they were believers of Jesus Christ, they would have been forsaking a tradition. And, and heritage and tradition and family meant so much to that culture. And by declaring yourself to Jesus Christ, you would have been forsaken of that family. And they would have walked into the temple and seen all this worshiping of, uh, and sacrificing. And they would have probably thought, you know, I've lost my heritage and my name. Is it really worth it? Am I right? And so this is a book that was written to address that, to remind these Hebrew believers, don't go back, don't give in to the great temptation because Jesus is superior and is worth it. 
It's fascinating to me, there are 154 words in the original language that are only written and used in the book of Hebrews, nowhere else in the Bible. There are 10 words that were used in the book of Hebrews that are not used anywhere in classical Greek until after this book was written. That's fascinating to me. Twelve times in 13 chapters, the word better is used. And 61 times, the phrase God spoke is used. It's amazing. I love this book, and and it's worth your time to spend deep meditation and consideration. And if you struggle at all in comprehending some of the Levitical law in the Old Testament and how does it fit into Christianity, this book can open that all up in incredible ways. So what does it have to do with Advent? I think it has a lot to do with Advent. It starts out with this picture that I want us to comprehend. It says at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I am probably going to miss a quote, the ESV, because I memorized this a long time ago, and there are different versions in my head, and so you're going to have to excuse me if you look at it and say, that's not what it says. It's there. Just trust me. It sounds like a biblical thing. Just trust me. But it starts with God spoke. We, we can go all the way back to Genesis, and it tells us God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke is so significant. God speaks because God has a desire to, to speak His creation into being, and then after speaking into be, being, God has a desire to speak to His creation. God has always had a desire to communicate with His creation. And and it's amazing if you go back to Genesis chapters 2 and 3 where it talks about the creation of of man and, and, and you get this glimpse of this idea of what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden and it just blows my mind. What would that have been like that it tells us that God walked with them in the cool of the day? That God was present in a relationship with them, communicating on a regular basis. How long was that? We don't know how long it was from when Adam and Eve were created to the moment that they fell at creation by uh, disobeying God. But maybe that was was, uh, a day. Maybe it was centuries. We don't know how long that was. But it is amazing to me to think what it would have been like to have that type of relationship with God. And that was his desire, by the way. But then we read in Genesis 3 that that relationship was broken. And relationship with man was fragmented. And we have this whole Old Testament filled with fragmented relationship with God. From that moment, they were kicked out. And, and, and we read here in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The reality is there were limitations after the Garden of Eden. That it was, it was in many ways and in many different variations that God would speak. He would call uh, at various times. He would speak specifically to Abraham. And he said, hey, Abraham, get out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and come to the place where I show you and, and I, will, uh, uh, I will set you up as a people. And then it's 18 years later that God speaks. You know, you think about that. If you have a friend who, who calls you up one day and, and, and starts uh, having a relationship and communicating with you and then does, it's gone for 18 years, 
That's a long break. But that's the nature of, of God communicating to man throughout the Old Testament at various times, it says, and in various ways. Sometimes it was a pillar of fire. Sometimes it was a pillar of smoke. Sometimes it was a burning bush. There were many ways that God would communicate to His people in visions, in dreams, in various ways by prophets and by priests at various times. But it was never a, a, a long-term thing that was consistently going. Because Why? Because God could not dwell in the presence of sin. And in fact, in the Old Testament, I want you to just get the picture in your mind of what it would have been like to be a, a, a Jewish believer uh, in, in Jehovah and the, the, in the practice of Judaism that once a year you would have the opportunity to send a high priest into a place that you could never go, that one man and one man alone could go in once a year, and that was the relationship that mankind had with God in direct communication at various times and in various ways. And in fact, we're then told at the end of Malachi, you have 400 years of silence. Before Matthew begins. That's a long time. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, verse 2, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. God speaks. Now, in these last days, in fact, the word in times past, the original language literally means it was worn out and it was ready to be changed. So in times past, God spoke to us in a time that was worn out and ready to re be replaced. God had said, this is the end, and now he is opening up something new. And the, the message here. Uh, and I don't mean to get classroomish, but the original language here is marvelous. It says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The, the Greek there literally means, in these last days, He has spoken His Son. It doesn't, the, the by is not in the original language. It literally means that He spoke Jesus. Because that's the message He is communicating to us today. That in these last days, as the Old Testament is worn out and put away, put aside, the, the, the very message is not what Jesus says, but Jesus himself. In fact, we're told in, in John chapter 1, this very idea, John chapter 1, starting at verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it jumps down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The idea is, as John says it so eloquently, is that Jesus is the exegete of God. That Jesus is God in the flesh, that He has come, and now to us replaced with, with one more statement, Jesus is our message. The message is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the final speech of God to man in times past. Because now He has spoken to us, Jesus. 
It's an incredible thing. And, and, and the implications and the, the, the understanding is, is really rich and deep if you just take the time to meditate and, and consider it. But we are talking about the Son. And, and so the writer of Hebrews goes in and he says some more incredible things. He tells us uh, who the Son is. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. He is the heir. He made the ages. Um, in fact, John 1 tells us that nothing was made without him. And, and I'm going to deviate a little bit from the ESV because I just don't like how they word it. It says in, in, uh, in another translation, it tells us that being the radiance of God's glory. Not he is the radiance. It says being the radiance. Notice what it says. It says being, not became. That is very significant. That Jesus was and always is the radiance of God's glory. Can, can you just pause and, 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 and just think about that for a moment? He is the very thing that makes God's glory its brightness. He is the, the very thing that brings and illuminates and makes weighty the glory of God. He is the source and the originator of all of God's glory. He is greatness. He is the radiance of God's glory. It goes on, it says that he is the exact imprint. In, in another translation, it says he is the express image. The Greek word there literally means character. He is the, the very essence of God. So when we see Jesus, that's why when, when uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in those last days, he says to them, uh, uh, John chapter 14, do not fear, you believe in God, believe also in me. And, and Philip speaks up and he says to Jesus, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, all would be okay. And Jesus says to Philip, don't you know anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus is the exact representation. He is the, you know, the, the, the image that is often portrayed with this is that of an engraver, that if you've got a signet ring, and when you stamp it into wax, whatever is left, that impression, is what, what is the representation. And so it is an exact copy. The reality is that when we see Jesus, when we read Jesus, we see the Father. This is very significant, and I'm trying to pull it all together here. Why is it so important that Jesus came? And we're going to dive into this in just a little bit even more. But why is it so important that Jesus came? So that we could see the very heart of God. Because if we remember, we just said that, that what God spoke was Jesus, and if Jesus is here... Um, it's why the, text, or the, uh, the, the Pharisees would say things to Jesus like, hey, don't you know that you're eating with tax collectors and sinners? This isn't how God would act. And, and God essentially, in the form of a human flesh, as Jesus says, you don't know God because here I am and my heart is to be with sinners who need me. And Jesus broke barriers all the time to show us the very heart and essence of Jesus. Eating with tax collectors and sinners, talking with Samaritan woman, forgiving a woman caught in adultery, touching lepers, going into the home of Zacchaeus over and over again. You can look at Jesus and know that he is the exact character of God on earth and we can find out what the Father's heart is. He manifested himself so that we can know how God feels about sinners. And Luke 19.10 tells us exactly that. The Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. That's the heart of God. So he's the exact imprint of his nature, the very character of God on earth. And then it goes on, it says, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Can, can we just think about that? That, you know, Colossians 1, 15 through 17 tells us that, that uh, he is in all things and all things hold together because of him. And, and you know, when we look at science and we look at things like protons that, that should not exist because of, of their, their opposites and, and how they push apart and yet somehow they are held together, I can tell you how they are held together. By the word of the power of Jesus. That Jesus holds things together that shouldn't be held together. And, and, and he is the one that controls and, 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 and has the power to do so. What an incredible thing. And, and so we're told that, that he upholds. He is the, the glue in all of creation. And, and when you pause and think about that for a moment and, and what that means, that Jesus literally held the spit together as it came flying at his face before he was crucified. The passage goes on and it tells us not just who he is, but what he did. It says, after making purification for sins, and I'm going to deviate a little bit from that translation as well. In some translations, it tells us, and after having made, uh, after having purged us of our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says he purged our sins, not purged our sins from us. This is important because he purged us of our sins. That means he got rid of the disease. He eliminated it. In some translations it says by himself he did this. There was no one to assist him. You don't help God in the process of purification. Only he, by the way, was by himself ever when he was crucified on the cross. And he said, Lama, Lama, Sabachthia. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only he has ever been by himself. And he did all of this by himself. Why? Because all glory and honor is to him alone. And then it says, and at the right hand, he sat down when he had finished this at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know that if you go into the temple, there are no chairs. There are no seats in any temple. You know why? Because the priest's job is never finished. The priest will never finish. In fact, in Hebrews, we're going to read later on uh, in the coming weeks that, that sacrifice for sins are never ending. If we sacrifice animals, blood, blood of bulls and goats, they're just a reminder, a continual reminder of sin. They will never take away. But Jesus, once for all, sat down after He had purged our sins from us. Sin is paid in full. God doesn't have a mortgage out on you where He's making payments. It is finished. You might not be finished in your sanctification but it is finished by him and we see the glory of his goodness later on in the chapter as God himself says to the son in verse 8 your throne O God is forever and ever the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom so what's the significance in all this 
He came. His coming is the answer to the problem of Genesis 3 and a broken relationship with creation. He came. He came. He didn't say he could have, he had every right to just sit from his throne and say, damnation for all. That was his right. He would have been fully justified in doing that. But yet he did not. He spoke, he came. He came, His coming is the demonstration of the very heart of God, His pursuit. Can, can we just think through that, that God came, that he, he left His throne and He came to earth, he, he lived, He was subjecting Himself to humanity, and we get the picture of this throughout Jesus' parables when He talks about how significant it is for Him to come, because He wants to come. We see the parable of the lost sheep, He says, if there are 99 here, that's fine, but there's one missing, I'm going to go. He says, if somebody loses a coin, will they not sweep the entire house and look for it because they want that coin and when that coin is found, they rejoice. Jesus says, and if the son in his, uh, if there are two sons and one decides he's going to take his father's wealth and he's going to go and, and, and spend it all on frivolous things of this world and he's going to live a, a unholy life and, and suddenly decides to come back, it tells us in the story of the prodigal son that the father is looking and sees him from afar and he does something that is very contrary to Jewish tradition. The father would have never got up and ran. The father would have never went, but he does. It tells us that he, he grabs his cloak, he wraps it around himself when he sees his son, and he runs and he goes to him and he embraces him and he kisses him over and over again. And he goes and he tells his other son, we're going to have a feast because the son who was dead has returned. That's the glimpse into the heart of God. Those are the, 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 the very pursuit of Jesus in coming. And we see his actions in why he came, that he came to seek sinners. He came uh, to, to find those who were lost in sin and death. And so it says that he came to purge uh, us of sin, to get rid of it, to die, to redeem mankind. He came. So why is it significant that he came? As we consider Advent, as we start to think through, okay, uh, we're going to celebrate Jesus' coming. And it was something that was anticipated. It was something that we are looking forward to. Why is it important? Because God came. And He lived among us. Advent means He came for you. Sometimes Christmas and the holidays are a lonely, sad time as we reflect on things we've lost or maybe we reflect on, on what we would consider loneliness and I get it. But if we could pause at Advent and, and consider in this season that He came for me, we can find real joy. Because He did come for you 
I mean, that is the, this is the gospel in a nutshell, is it not? That Jesus Christ saw the problem of humanity. In, in, in fact, we're told that before creation was already uh, established, He knew and He was prepared. And so at, at uh, a time, in fact, in Galatians chapter 4, we're told that when the time was right, it, it, at the right time, God sent His Son into the world and He came to live and to die for all of mankind and He could provide salvation. So what does Advent mean? It means that He came for you. So if you are sitting here today and you say, my relationship with God is still broken, He came for you. He came for you. Don't don't let the significance slip your mind. But if you have no relationship with God, then here is the opportunity. This is why it's so significant. There is a gulf between man and God because of sin, because God cannot dwell in the midst of sin. And the only way that gap could be covered was when Jesus came to earth to live and to die for us, that God said, I will speak my son and he will be there and he will live. He will die a perfect and holy life and he will offer his life as a sacrifice of atonement to pay the penalty for sins of all mankind. And here's the beauty of it. Because of Advent, meaning he came, there is hope. For all who have that broken relationship. Because we were told over and over again in the Word that here's the reality. That because He came, because He lived, because He died, because He rose from the dead, all who would believe in Jesus Christ and what He has done might receive eternal life. We're going to look in a few weeks at an incredible passage in 1 John chapter 2. It says, by these things I have written unto you that you may know that you may not sin any longer, which sounds great, but the verse goes on and it says, but when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's an incredible thing. And we only have an advocate because He came. Second, I want us to understand that Advent means Jesus is the very message of God. It's not just a story to read this time of year. Angels announced it, singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Can you imagine that angelic choir proclaiming that news on a hillside in Bethlehem? Angels announced Him. Shepherds worshipped Him. He, didn't, he came to earth, and as far as we know, that very first night when He was there, they came and worshipped Him. Wise men came from afar, from who knows how far total distance they traveled to find Him. This is significant. So at this time of year, can we consider the significance that He came? Let us reflect on the very heart of God. What is God's heart like? Well, let's see what Jesus is like. Let us not just reflect on the heart of God. Let us believe the heart of God. Believe that He came because He wanted to. In fact, later in Hebrews, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was His delight. 
and believe the heart of God? Can we give thanks for the very heart of God that He loved us so much that He would come and live and die and instead of just focusing on, on, on making Christmas lists and on, on, on whose house we're going to go in and, and, and what time we need to be where and what food does, needs to be prepared and how do we do this and what are we going to do here? Can we just pause and give thanks that God Almighty came as a baby and lived and died and expressed His very heart of pursuit after me through this? And lastly, this time as we reflect on the significance that He came, let's worship Him. Let's worship Him for all that He has done for us. Let's give Him the glory and the honor and the praise that He deserves. This book of Hebrews is amazing. If you read through the rest of chapter 1, here's the message that Hebrews tells us. Chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus came as the very message of God, as the very image and the express uh, uh, nature of Him. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He became much more superior than anything. He's more superior than anything. And He is the founder of our hope and salvation. Therefore, let us worship Him. We have a great opportunity now as we consider this and we consider the advent and the coming of Christ and as we prepare our hearts for that day when we are going to gather with family most likely and we're going to celebrate Jesus' coming and what He did. Now we can also this morning partake in a wonderful celebration. We talk about family when we do baby dedication and how sweet it is to, to bring before you a child and say this is a child that we hope to see very quickly come to know Jesus as their Savior. And what a beautiful thing that is. And we also as a family gather together around uh, two elements that Jesus said, I want you guys to understand what the significance of this. So he called his disciples into an upper room on the, the Passover week. And, and they were celebrating an Old Testament feast. An important one that signified the redemption of the people of Israel from bondage to slavery in, in Egypt. And how God would bring them out of Egypt and protect them while he wiped out the firstborn son of those who did not sacrifice and participate in the killing of a lamb and putting its blood on the doorposts. And so Jesus, in, in probably connecting for them for the first time as they began to unpack all this, He said, guess what? We are going to celebrate, like this Passover feast, the redemption of your souls from sin. That I would come, and I have come, and my body would be represented by this bread broken for you. And my blood being represented in this cup poured out for you. And when God Almighty the Father sees the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of your heart, He will pass judgment beyond you. And we celebrate together. And so Jesus says that from now on, you gather together and you remember my sacrifice. You remember that I came and that I lived among you and that I died for you. And because of that, you are eternally cleansed. So as the ushers come forward to distribute the elements, as they play some music for you, if you would just take some time to pause and think, we, we celebrate the Lord's Feast in this way. We, we would call it Open Communion. 
That if you are a believer, if you have put your hope in what Jesus Christ has done for you, you are welcome to the table. And we would encourage you to be a part of that. But if you can sit here and say, I do not have a relationship with Jesus, would you honor Him and let it pass by you? But please don't let this be a time to pass by the offer of hope and salvation that He gives to you. If you do not have that relationship with Him, would you take time to pause and consider and to to reflect on the very heart of God that says, I will come for my children and I will offer myself as a gift of eternal hope and redemption. And so while you might let the elements pass by, don't let today pass by. Put your hope in Jesus and what He has done. And then when they have distributed the elements, I'll come back and we'll give thanks together. And we'll partake in the cup and in the bread.